Hello and welcome to Rory and Dara's research and development on Flirt FM 101.3. If you're new to the show, here's a little bit about us. So basically, myself and Rory, we take a topic uh, twice a week. We have about five days to research it and then on our show, we develop it. So we aim to inform you, our listeners, about the topics we have researched and we hope to kind of educate you a little bit on uh, different uh, current affairs and a few off the beating track stories. What do you think of that Rory? Would you say that's a fair um, evaluation? I'd say that's a perfect evaluation. <laughs> oh, very good and just before we start how was your your week Rory? My week was great actually Dara. I, I did a bit of painting this mm. week and I decided I watched uh, I sat down and watched a an episode of Bob Ross um, with my parents. They even though they were alive during that kind of time, they'd never watched Bob Ross before. Uh, so I, we sat down and we watched an episode of Bob Ross and he inspired me to go Excellent. into painting. I'm sitting next to uh, Leonardo da Vinci himself. <laughs> you know, you know, you know. <laughs> uh, if you know, you know, yeah, exactly. exactly. But um, you're probably wondering, listeners, what song that was. That was Who Are You by The Who. Who are they? We don't know. We don't know. And you know, another person we don't know about and who he was was uh, Peter Bergman. Ooh, and, and I know you might be thinking, like, you know his name, but do we? Do we really? But before I get into my topic, you have a topic for us in the second half of the show, Dara. What is it? I do. Well, I have two topics. And ah. uh, this week, it's all about short things. So not really things, but more kind of wars, the shortest wars and the shortest countries ever to exist. So they're very funny. Um, some of them are really short. You know, they only existed for maybe uh, five or six days. One war lasted 45 minutes. So uh, <laughs> I hope you enjoy later on. But anyways. Yeah, no, no. Really Peter Bergman. Peter Bergman. Or is it Peter Bergman? Well, that's the thing. I'll get into exactly who he really was, even though we don't really know later on. But I'll, I'll give you kind of the introductory, the, the introduction to who, who Peter Bergman and what his story is right now. And... Um, He's kind of a mystery, an Irish mystery. And that's why I liked it so much. Because, you know, we hear of all these kind of murders and people going missing in the United States, UK, kind of the bigger countries. But here on our little island of Ireland, we also have these kind of grand mysteries. I'm actually kind of hoping to do more of these uh, over yeah. the next couple of weeks. I think in, you know, next kind of two, three weeks, I'll try and do some more of these mysteries. Definitely. Uh, kind of make it into a little, you know... Segments. Segments, exactly. But what I like as well is this is obviously close to home. Exactly. Well, it's so close that I was in Sligo, actually. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the two kind of main areas the story takes place in is uh, Derry and Sligo, uh, but mostly in Sligo. Um, but here we go. I'll, I'll give you the background, the introduction to Peter Bergman, the man who never was. Ooh. So the discovery. In the early morning of June 16th, 2009, a sea fog was hovering over Roses Point Beach in County Sligo. It was just beginning to lift soon after 6am when Arthur Kinsla and his son Brian drove into the beach's car park after a short journey from their home in Carton. Cartron, sorry. Um, so Brian Kinsla uh, was training for a triathlon and he ran um, ahead of his father uh, across the sand, eager to swim in the Atlantic. Um, but the tide was out that morning. Uh, so as Arthur Kinsla followed his son, 
he noticed something slightly unusual to his right-hand side. Um, and he knew Rose's Point Beach quite intimately uh, from many morning expeditions with his son. But as he went closer to this, you know, unfamiliar object, he saw that it was a human. Ooh. A human body. Oh, jeez. And it was a body lying face down in the ground, cold and dead. So he saw, he naturally thought that it was someone who'd drowned. And so he, he called his son to come back from the water. Um, and at this stage, the fog had completely lifted. Um, so, by the way, that is why he didn't instantly recognise that it was a body. Because, you know, normally on a beach, your line of sight is quite good. Yeah. But he didn't uh, instantly recognise that it was a body. I had to go up to it because of the fog. So yes. at this stage, the fog's lifted. And he noticed something else strange when he approached the body. That there were no footprints. So, again, he, he you know, he summed it up and he was like, definitely drowned. Yeah. Um, and he said, this is a quote from uh, his interview with the police, you know, when he was given his... Um, statement. Statement, thank you. And he said, quote, he looked about 65, uh, I thought. Uh, he says, we walked around the body just to make sure that he was dead. And I actually placed my hand on his ankle and it was marble cold. So, so he yeah, he was obviously dead for a while. A while, exactly. And he, he was blue. He was completely blue. Obviously, you know, a shocking sight for anyone. Um, and Arthur being quite a nice, not a nice, a good father, sorry. He tried to shield Brian, his son, a little bit yeah. from it. Uh, so Brian didn't really investigate the body super intimately. But uh, his father did, just to make yeah. sure that, you know... I wouldn't say he's meddling or anything like that. You know, when we're thinking about the mystery surrounding Peter Bergman, I don't think Arthur can, can be considered a suspect. A suspect, yeah. Uh, I think he's just a man who came upon a body on a beach, a very mysterious body, as we'll continue to find out. So, naturally, Arthur decided to call the Gardaí. So, Sergeant Terry McMahon uh, had just come on duty at 6am, and about 45 minutes into his shift, he decided, he not decided, he got this call. So he sent out two other lads as he looked for some tarpaulin to put over the body. Yeah. Because he knew that's kind of the protocol. They hadn't, they haven't had many murders or, you know, many bodies wash up on the shore lately or at this stage in 2009. So Terry was making sure that everything was in the right order when he arrived on the scene as he was the, the sergeant. And mm. um, so he arrives um, with the tarpaulin about 10 minutes after his colleagues. Uh, and they were taking statements from the Kinsons. Yes. So where we got that quote earlier on. Um, and he says, this is uh, Mr. McMahon uh, during an interview about the mysterious uh, man, Peter Bergman. Uh, and he says, quote, it was quite obvious he was dead. <laughs> well, that's a, yeah, yeah, that's a pretty accurate statement. Exactly. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> he's speaking facts. No cap. No cap. We, we only learned that word last week. Yeah. And he continues to describe the man, and he says he was a grey-haired gentleman, and he looked to me like he hadn't been uh, that long in the water. Ooh. So kind of two different things that, mm. you know, contradict each other. You know, you have Arthur Kinsella saying he's marble cold, completely blue. Yeah. And then Mr. McMahon arriving on the scene 10 minutes after being called out, and saying that the body didn't look like it had been in that water that long. And I... This is me interjecting with my own thoughts, but I believe because, you know, the tide went out, yeah. that the body wouldn't have been as wrinkled and everything else. Yes. Um, like, it should have been if it had floated and just landed on the beach right in front of our... But obviously already there are discrepancies, or one could uh, argue that there are discrepancies there. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. 
But I'm not. We are not saying that anyone who I mentioned no, in the story no. is involved in no. the death of Peter Bergman. I'm, we're just adding to the mystery around Peter Bergman. Yes, you know, just exactly. stating things yeah. that you know we point out. Just, just to clarify, we're yeah. not accusing anyone of anything. So, Mr. McMahon um, noted that the dead man was oddly dressed for a swimmer. So he had on a pair of purple striped speedo uh, type swimming trunks uh, with his underpants over the top and a navy t-shirt tucked into them. So that's that's quite odd. You, Very you, odd. You wouldn't have your underpants usually tucked yeah, over the and top. And I wouldn't go into the water like that. Exactly. You'd almost want, especially, you know, well, no, June, it would, could be quite warm. But, you know, the Atlantic Ocean is quite cold. Yeah. So I'm a bit of a wimp, so I would have gone <laughs> full kind of sunsuit. Full, full wetsuit. Wetsuit, that's yeah. it, exactly. And um, so this was the first of a number of strange things about the dead man on the beach. As uh, we're starting to find out more, it's interesting. So, I'm going to tell you a bit uh, a bit about the events that led up prior to the body being discovered. So, you know the the odd things that were discovered about Peter Bergman before he was found dead. So, on the afternoon of June the twelfth, two thousand and nine, on a Friday, a tall, thin man with short grey hair, very much like what Mr. McMahon had described him as, and um, was captured on CCTV cameras at a Derry bus station. Oh, so far away from Sligo. Exactly. Um, and he was wearing a black leather jacket and carrying two black bags. Now remember that, Dara. He's, he's carrying bags. This comes into play later on in the okay. story. Um, and he also had a laptop type bag slung over his shoulder. Uh, right? So just remember that. Um, he was looking for a bus to Sligo, uh, which was supposed to leave at 4pm. Um, and two hours and 28 minutes later, uh, the man was seen again coming off that bus. So he naturally got on that bus. Um, the town's bus and train stations are both within walking distance of several hotels. But the tall, thin man uh, did not appear to be aware of this. And so he went to a taxi rank, um, or he found a taxi, sorry. We'll get on to why he didn't go to a taxi rank directly in a second. And he asked the driver to bring him to a cheap place to stay. So originally he goes to this guest house don't have any place to stay so the taxi driver brings him to the Sligo City Hotel which is closest to the nearest taxi rank people don't know and uh, because the taxi man could not remember when he was interviewed later to give his statement whether um, Peter Bergman had asked to go to that hotel because it was close to public transport you know taxis yeah. buses or, but he ended up staying in the Sligo City Hotel but he obviously didn't know the place well Exactly. He wasn't there before, probably. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's, there, there have been no sightings of him yeah. prior to this. He kind of just arrives in Derry, is seen on CCTV in Derry, and just goes to Sligo, right? So that's kind of... He just appears, which is really mysterious. Yeah. So CCTV, once again, helping majorly in the kind of mystery of Peter Bergman, uh, recorded uh, this man uh, at around 6.52pm. Um, and the receptionist checked him in, um, and in 2009, a single occupancy room with breakfast cost 65 euro. So he then proceeded to pay for three nights in cash. And after the receptionist gave her statement, she said that he had an Austrian or German accent. Okay. So he was not a native Irishman. Yeah. 
And this is where we get the name Peter Bergman, because the name he wrote in the hotel register was Peter Bergman. That, yeah, that Bergman sounds as if it's from those parts. Exactly, yeah. Austria, Germany yeah. kind of area. But he was not asked to prove his identity, so he didn't have any identification on him that would approve... Well, it is believed that he didn't have any identification, because later on I'll get onto why Peter Bergman wasn't actually a real person. So... We're going to continue to call him Peter Bergman for now, and I'm going to describe a couple of his behavioural patterns, the peculiar behaviour he got up to in Sligo. So he was seen on CCTV cameras then, going uh, going from the receptionist desk to the front door um, over and over again uh, over the next three days, right? So he's, he's constantly going in and out. Normally when you're in a hotel, kind of go you're there in the morning you leave you go on your kind of sightseeing everything like that you come back in the end you might leave again to go and get some food and you come back but he was going in and out in yeah and out, that in seem, and out. seems as if he was quite agitated or something exactly so he's going in and out in and out seen out over the cctv cameras and this puzzled the guardie and um, when they reviewed the cctv footage as it does as it puzzled us yeah. and when we heard about it and um they also then linked his movements with CCTV around Sligo City, right? Uh, but each time he returned to the hotel, and this is where I told you to remember about the bags, um, he was no longer carrying anything. So like so much else about this case, it is unclear if the bag was now in his pocket of his black leather jacket, even though it was quite a sizable bag, or it had uh, been stashed in his hotel room, even though he had been seen walking out with these bags and then walking back without them. Very strange. So yeah, exactly. And as I'll get onto, the CCTV around Sligo City helped um, helps tell us exactly what he was doing with those bags. Yeah. Um, so I'm just gonna kind of come back to that in a second. I'm gonna go on to who the chief investigator of the case was in 2009. Um, and that was John O'Reilly. Uh, who was a d the detective inspector um, attached to the Sligo Leitrim division, right? And he oversaw the case um, when it was first logged as an unidentified male on Roses Point Beach. Yeah. So to the stage, at this stage, sorry, it wasn't flagged as murder, it wasn't flagged as a suicide or anything like that. It was just, you know... I'm they just, didn't know. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so despite the extensive network of CCTV cameras across Sligo town um, in 2009, O'Reilly reports that not a single piece of footage showed Peter Bergman disposing of the contents of his bag uh, 13 times over, right? So they never actually caught him on camera disposing, but they know that he'd leave with a bag of things, but he wouldn't return with that same so bag. He, yeah, he's leaving it somewhere, really. Exactly, exactly. So they know he's up to something, they just don't know what. Um, and then they said, there, there, uh, nor is there any evidence that Peter Bergman was meeting someone in Sligo and passing these things on to that person or persons, right? So on CCTV footage, even though this man apparently had never been to Sligo before, was never seen even talking to another person unless it was in relation to public transport or getting somewhere or receiving something, yeah. right? I'll go on to um, kind of some of the stamps he bought later on because I don't know that they, they might help some of our listeners piece together yeah and um, more of the story um but when O'Reilly the uh, detective was asked what he believed 
was in those bags, uh, he said, quote, uh, personal effects, uh, effects. Uh, but you know, we can't, uh, we can talk about that until the cows come home, but we cannot speak about what we do not know. But I would imagine he had, uh, he had clothing or personal effects, possibly a passport. So he's saying that he doesn't believe that there were drugs in those bags or anything like that. They, you know, a uh, bit too blatant. Yeah, yeah. But it, that the contents of the bag were probably normal. Mm, exactly, exactly. But that they, they don't know what was in them. Exactly. It's something that probably belonged to Peter Bergman. Yeah. And this mysterious figure. But they can't conclusively say that it was personal items. So it's still a mystery what were in those bags. Um, but... Uh, I'll tell you a little bit later on what was found that did officially belong to Peter Bergman after his death, but that's later on. Okay. So I'm just going to go back after telling you a little bit about um, John O'Reilly to his peculiar behaviour in Sligo Town. So Peter Bergman um, had arrived on Friday, as I said. Yeah. So on the Saturday afternoon, he had walked around the corner from the hotel to the town's main post office, and he bought 10 82-cent stamps and was given uh, was also given airmail stickers so he decided that he was going to post something but we never found out what it was so back in 2009 it cost 55 cent to post a letter within ireland and 82 stamps would take a letter to the rest of the world so we know that he's mailing something abroad yeah which adds to the fact that he had a german austrian accent so most likely well we're not saying but probably to home or wherever that was yeah exactly exactly that's what it's believed you know especially after he winds up dead in Sligo yeah people speculate that it could have been a goodbye note to his family mm. it could be it could have been I don't know maybe sending back some money yeah anything it could have been anything and the fact that it's near near impossible to track anything this man did leads to many more questions than if we did see him do certain things yeah you know? it's just it's it leads to so many questions and um, but this transaction with the stamps uh, was captured on cctv in the sligo post office and um, and there is a cctv camera over the boxes that stand near uh, the entrance the left hand entrance to the uh, sligo post office uh, office but if you post letters in the exterior boxes there were no cameras oh so they don't know what he posted. Yeah. But this is what really gets me, is that he does not have any knowledge of Sligo, you know, town. Yeah. But he's not seen doing any of these, you know, things that most people so, are... So, yeah, he knew where to go to, go, to exactly. be sort of in a, a blackout zone. Mm, yeah. To be hidden. Yeah. To conceal himself. Yeah. So... Just so much mystery surrounding this man. So basically, uh, Mr. O'Reilly, uh, Sergeant O'Reilly, uh, the detective anyway, um, says that he believes that um, this man may have had training. Wow. May have had training. As the inspector and the, the, head, the head kind of detective of this investigation, after seeing everything, he came to the conclusion that this man had had some training but he doesn't know from where or what agency he was working for or anything like that. He just knows that he had to have some kind of operative training to have managed to successfully dodge, have dodged all those cameras. But that is only the opinion of Detective O'Reilly, Sergeant O'Reilly. He, he never kind of came forward and wrote that 
in his report mm. of the investigation. But that adds another, well, it's not for definite, but another possibility, like another dimension to the story. Absolutely. It opens it up to so much more speculation. Yeah. Like there's so much that's just so unexplained. But this, I think, was a... Uh, but Mr. Uh, you know, Sergeant O'Reilly's uh, kind of description of his behaviour and everything like that, what we do know about him, it does add up. It does. It does add up. Because if you're a spy, you don't want to be seen on no. cameras. You don't want to be, you know, seen doing the maybe possibly illegal things that mm. you'd be doing as a spy or something like that. Um, and so it adds up. Yeah. It adds up that. So I'll move on to his final day at the hotel, the third and final day. So on the Sunday, which was the third and final night, as I was saying, of Peter Bergman's uh, stay at the Sligo City Hotel, he again went in search of a taxi, but he had brought a map with him. So he had a map in hand, a tourist map now, not one that he had brought himself. So that's an interesting yeah. thing. He picked it up at the hotel. I believe, but I cannot confirm, there was CCTV footage of him doing this. And it was one of the few times that he was caught on CCTV actually performing an action like this, picking up an information booklet or something like that. Which, again, adds to the kind of theory and everything like that, that he must have had knowledge of Sligo because he hadn't picked up any tourist leaflets or anything like that before, before then. And he hadn't visited any sites yeah. of you know note in Sligo yeah. he'd just been walking around not aimlessly because it seemed like he had a purpose but he had just been walking around but the funny thing is if he was a virtual cameras a spy yes you'd expect him that he would have his own map yes. or something yes. you know exactly. that he'd have a, a brief mm. and go here go there here the, I don't know the coordinates or something that that uh, an agency would be, or I'm not saying that he was, but <laughs> but they'd be more wary, um, than just using a a tourist map. Yes. Yes. They'd use something more accurate. You exactly. Know? Exactly. So there's so many questions surrounding this man. So, um, but yes, I agree with you completely. Again, the tourist map is another indication that this man had some ulterior motive, something yeah. different, um. Because, uh, as no sightseeing. Anyway, um, this is a quote from a uh, Gerard Higgins, who was uh, the man at the top of the taxi rank outside the hotel. So the taxi driver, basically, that drove him on his final day. And this is a quote from him, and he says, quote, I got out of my minibus to say hello, because a man with a map wishes to go somewhere, unquote. And um, his passenger told him, so Mr. Um, Bergman, uh, he was looking for a place to swim and he pointed to Strand Hill on the map. Higgins knew Strand Hill was a surfing beach and instead suggested Rose's Point. So the initial plan of Mr. Peter Bergman was not to go to Rose's Point Beach, but to go to another beach. So, you know, again, a very kind of spontaneous thing for a man to do, you know, change all of his plans and it would be the place that he wound up dead again. Very strange. Like, but if he... I don't know, but if he was, again, inverted commas, a spy, yes. you know, his movements are so erratic. Mm, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And even the pattern that the, the guardie tried to, you know, kind of pinpoint onto him and everything like that, it led to nothing. And they can't. They can't. Well, they can actually identify his movements. They just don't know what he did in certain places when yeah, he arrived there. Yeah, that's strange, isn't Same it? Same as the post office. He, he walked into the post office, he bought the stamps, 
but they did not see what he mailed. Yeah. Uh, there are several accounts, well, not accounts, CCTV footage, basically, of him arriving at cafes and purposefully sitting um, on tables that were not in the line of sight of CCTV cameras. Wow. So, obviously, he was checking up where they were. But that's the thing. There wasn't anything kind of... He didn't do that, sorry. That's what I was trying to say. Oh. He didn't look. He didn't stare at the CCTV cameras. If you're kind of trying to scan a place quickly, you look up at the corners because yeah. you know that's where the CCTV cameras are going to be. He didn't. He knew where they were. That's very and strange. And he'd go and sit in random places, supposedly random places that were out of the line of sight of CCTV cameras. But it happened so often in his short visit to Sligo that it can't have been a coincidence. And are there any phone records from him? Well, there are no phone records, but... Mr. Higgins does come into play with helping to identify Mr. Peter Bergman, um, his real identity a little bit, because Higgins recalls that Peter Bergman told him he was from Austria. Okay. So we know he's from Austria. That's a given, unless he was lying to yeah. Mr. Higgins, which is possible, but with his accent, with everything, Bergman, you know, ties his in. false yeah. identity, you know, kind of ties in. And he also recalls that Mr. Peter Bergman had a prominent gold tooth. A thing that people hadn't identified on him earlier. Because if I tell you, if I tell you, like, describe someone, and they had a gold tooth, and from the description of a prominent gold tooth, you're thinking in the kind of forefront of the mouth. Yeah, exactly. If I told you to describe that person, I think that is something that you would mention. Oh, it would catch your eye. And that's something that you can use to distinguish people, because not many have it. Exactly. And especially in such prominent exactly Place. exactly and why didn't people who had interacted with peter bergman why didn't people earlier describe that golden tooth it almost as if it appeared mysteriously yeah. out of nowhere like it was very strange so anyway that's the end of kind of mr higgins and his thing he confirms that he's austrian and yeah. that he um basically has this golden tooth um, and then the final preparations before um not Mr. Higgins, Peter Bergman went missing and yeah. disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was basically, he, he, he checked out shortly after 1pm from the yeah. Sligo City Hotel. Um, he didn't go to the taxi rank, uh, but instead he went to the Sligo bus station and he was seen on CCTV arriving there at around 1.32pm. But much like the previous days, he had been seen leaving the hotel with a black holdall, um, right? He did not have the black hole doll when he arrived at the bus station. Oh, so, yeah, that's very strange. And they could not pinpoint the exact location he lost or Dropped left it off. the yeah. black hole doll. So, uh, it is possible that he left the black hole doll actually in the hotel because the staff couldn't remember if they disposed of it or not after mm. it was left for a long amount of time. Um, but basically, at the bus station... Peter Bergman was uh, bought a cappuccino um, and then bumped into a man called Vincent Dunbar. And he asked Vincent basically which bus he should take to get to Rose's Beach, Rose Point Beach, sorry. And um, Vincent, you know, told him where to go. But Vincent also said that he looked like a man that was stressed or in pain, Ooh. immense pain, yeah. right? Which, you know, yeah. why would a normal, regular bloke be in so much pain or so stressed? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, especially since he winds up dead on this beach. Very so strange. the final sightings of Mr. Peter Bergman alive uh, were on the Sunday, as I said, um, 
at around 9, 10 p.m. Uh, Peter Bergman was seen by two women carrying something that they were unsure of, right? So it could have been the black hole doll. He may have picked it back up before getting on the bus. Or something else. Or, or something what else. was in it, maybe. Exactly. Yeah, yeah we, we don't know. Um, and then the crowds kind of left the beach after at that point. But Peter Bergman stayed. He didn't get on another bus. Um, and he was seen at 10.30 p.m. Uh, by a member of uh, the public again with a plastic bag wearing glasses, right? So he, he put on some glasses, which he, he had had yeah. uh, this entire time, but he had put them back on even though he'd been walking um, around the beach without them on. And then at 11 p.m. he was seen again by a different person with the same plastic bag. So he's picked up his plastic bag, which I believe was what the women had seen him carrying earlier. But the final sighting of Peter Bergman while he was alive was by a woman at 10 to 12 at night carrying the plastic bag and walking along the edge of the incoming ocean and high tide was due to arrive within half an hour. Ooh. So, Going back to the very beginning of the story, Peter Bergman was found dead by Arthur and his son, Brian. And Terry McMahon, the sergeant who, from the very beginning of the story, the guardie that was called out, and his colleagues stayed at the beach looking for his belongings. And they did find belongings. And they found his shoes. Well, what was believed to be his shoes, his, his pants, his shirt, everything like that. Everything that he'd been wearing, his glasses. Um, and they were kept, they are still in the Garda station to this day in a brown cardboard box that hasn't been opened in a very long time. Um, and that basically is the end of the Peter Bergman case. Very strange. But it leaves us with some very, very obvious questions that who was Peter Bergman? Because Peter Bergman was proven to be a false identity yeah. by the Garda because they discovered in the pockets of his clothing uh, that there was a an address um, on his personal items and that they basically looked it up and it gave the street name of... It gave it the postcode of street in Vienna, in Austria. But when they checked it, it didn't exist. Oh, wow. It didn't exist. Very strange. And they'd been using postcodes in Vienna since 1966. Yeah. So it's not like he... I don't know, you know. And it wasn't an antique item either. Yeah. Exactly. And so he basically had made up this postcode yeah. and written down his things. And then, so Peter Bergman, who yeah. was he? Um, who was he? What was he disposing of around Slade? Very strange. Very strange. Obviously had a purpose. Why was he in Ireland? Yeah. Why? Because yeah. it's very odd for someone from a different country to come to another country, whether it be Ireland, Austria, other way around, everything like that, to act very mysteriously and then wind up dead. Very strange. And then the final question I have that is still unanswered was why did he die? And if he didn't kill himself, who killed him? And who was he running from? Yeah. Because everything indicates that he was in some disarray. He was scared. He was panicking. He was, as, as uh, the witness said, he was stressed and in pain. So yeah, that, that's the end of Peter Bergman, a very, very mysterious strange. case. And even stranger that it's in Sligo. Sligo, very close to home. You very, know? very, very strange. A bordering county. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally. Same province. Exactly, exactly. Like an hour and a half drive. 
from here. We could go to Rosa Point Beach today. Yeah. To the very place where he was discovered. We could go and walk around Sligo City. Uh, to all the bins that he's apparently or supposedly dumped things in, yeah. you know. We could do the exact same thing. We could stay in the Sligo City Hotel. But alas, we'll never know what Peter Bergman, or who Peter Bergman really was, and what he was doing in Ireland, and what he was doing in Sligo. Very strange. The only thing we do know is he's dead. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. I, I do feel very sad for him, because if there is no mystery behind it and he was just a very you know sad man and he did end up dying and everything like that i i, I feel for him a lot but yeah. from the erratic kind of behavior and everything like that there is definitely it's definitely not as cut and dry as that yeah exactly exactly i thoroughly enjoyed that that was really good oh great i'm glad you enjoyed well i think we're moving on to your topic which i also feel like i'll enjoy and uh we're going to play you a song now and i believe it is uh war what is it good for um, who's that by again, Dara? It is by Edwin Starr. Oh, great. It's a very good tune. I hope you enjoy. And after the break, we'll return with Dara's topic. Uh, enjoy. Oh, 
Hello and welcome back to Rory and Dara's research and development on Flirt FM 101.3. You were just listening to War by Edwin Starr, a classic tune, and I absolutely love it. Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Ties in nicely with my topics as well. It is for a, today. a beautiful topic. <laughs> a beautiful topic. Beautiful topics, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I suppose there's two aspects to what I researched this week. Um, I have, first off, is... Uh, kind of a few of the shortest lived countries ever <laughs> so very strange mm-hmm. and then following on from that i'll be talking about some of the shortest ever wars oh my <laughs> and some of them are really short really short <laughs> but i'm going to start off with the shortest lived countries and you probably haven't heard of any of these probably not <laughs> but the first one is very hard to pronounce but i'll do my best it's tanganyika and Ooh. it lasted from the 9th of december 1962 to April 26th, uh, 1964. So, two years, a year and a half, two years. So, not very long at all. If you consider, you know, Ireland, we've been a, a free state and a republic for nearly 100 years now. Mm. So, very, very short time for the Republic of Tanganyika. So, evidence of settlement in the area dates back to the 10th century, but it was colonised uh, by the Germans in the 1880s. Uh, officially becoming a protectorate in 1891 and it was part of German East Africa and this area encompassed many modern day um, countries so such as Rwanda, mainland Tanzania, Burundi and part of Mozambique. Oh okay? so it was quite big. Oh, it was very quite big. big Actually it was um, this land was over three times the size as Germany itself. <laughs> okay. Oh. So the Germans came over and officially took charge of the country due to a local revolt against the uh, German colonial company. So actually, you'll see, um, even in history, it's usually against the colonial company. Think of the, the British East India Company or the, oh, what's the name, the, the Dutch uh, company that um, it was over parts of Indonesia as yes. well. Yeah. So they're usually against these colonial companies, funnily enough. Okay, so the reason they were going against the colonial company was brought about due to the Germans' fear of local competition and racist tendencies. So, it, you know, they, they didn't really get along at all and they were really badly treated, the people living in these areas, mm. unfortunately. But by the time World War I ended, um, Britain had taken control of the, cont- of the country, yeah? Oh. And they called it the Tanganyika Territory in 1920. Okay, but then Belgium, obviously, they received the other land, which encompassed uh, German East Africa. So the name for the territory was derived from two Swahili words. I, my Swahili isn't great. I'll have to brush up on it. But it, um, it meant basically sail and wilderness. Okay. And perhaps a reference to the lake, which is partially located within it. Okay, so very interesting. Mm. And in 1962, Britain granted granted independence to Tanganyika like it did for many of its former colonies you know a lot of different places gained independence um around the 60s um in Africa a lot of different countries okay Tanganyika being one of them and um however the new republic didn't last long as the government decided to join with Zanzibar to form what is now known as Tanzania ah. so originally Tanganyika was actually its own you know, country. Yes. A fully functioning country. Mm. But the the government decided it was better to form with Zanzibar and to form what is now known as, obviously, Tanzania. 
Ah, so it was more out of... It wasn't like a... As, as probably you're going to get onto more wars, kind of... No. The, the country wasn't invaded. It was more out of, um, actually, probably functionality and mm. that it, it made a little more sense and probably strength in numbers. Exactly, exactly. So it was, it was kind of... It was a good sacrifice for those politicians to kind of join with uh, its neighbour neighboring country because even though they lose a bit of power they can yes. make the country stronger yes. as a whole yes now believe it or not next um sort of country i'm going to talk about is uh recent times 2012 oh, oh wow more specifically april 6th 2012 to july 12th 2012 as well so like less than <laughs> about three months <laughs> so very very short mm. so his name azawad okay as just azawad azawad okay? So, though never officially recognised by another country, the people of northern Mali, so that's a country in the northwestern part of Africa, really big country, yes. uh, but it's in the Sahara region. So, you know, loads of land there, but just uninhabited. Exactly. You can't really grow agriculture or, you know, do any crops no, on it. No, you can't. But anyways, the people of Azawad, okay, they rebelled against the government and declared their land a sovereign nation, uh, desiring an islamic nation and they tried to uh, govern it under sharia law yes okay? yes the rebels were actually pretty well trained and well armed so even though mali i believe it is a muslim country but they wanted it obviously to be a little stricter in in this region okay. and the rebels they were trained as i mentioned but they were also well armed okay so funnily enough they were forced to be reckoned with they defeated the government's forces in the early skirmishes of the revolution and beginning in April 12, uh, the fighting lasted mere months before the rebels were run out of their last, strong, last stronghold, the city of Ansogo. So they actually had this city under control, wow. Ansago. They had a good start, mm. you know, defeating the, the, the government forces. Yes. But obviously they were crushed pretty brutally then. It, it, it's kind of like a modern version of Spartacus and his like, you know, slave army and how oh, they kind yes. of... Broke away, yeah, created their own yeah, thing, yeah. and then eventually it, it, got crushed. It, it's very interesting, though. Oh, wow. And uh, since then, though, the rebels, uh, popularly known by their French acronym, the MLNA, uh, have agreed to tenuously respect the national integrity of Mali and are in talks with the government about their independence. So, actually, it is quite a constructive relationship at this point. However, it seems unlikely that they will emerge from these talks uh, with their own country as the mass as the vast majority of the international community denies their claim. So it's not really the people of Mali, it's more, you know, the UN. Yes. Uh, yes. International recognition, which obviously you have to have mm. to have a legitimate country. Kind of like how Canada recognised Ireland. Yes. Um, uh, so that we could get our independence and kind of be a sovereign country. Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah, totally. And the next place I would like to talk about is Capato. Uh, Oh, that's Ukraine. a nice name. <laughs> and if you thought the other one was short, yes, this only lasted a day. <laughs> so March fifteenth, nineteen thirty-nine, to March sixteenth, nineteen thirty-nine. So formed from the southwestern tip of Ukraine, uh, Kapato Ukraine, as its name was, uh, declared its independence on obviously the fifteenth of March, nineteen thirty-nine, but it was largely symbolic in nature. The Volushin government created the nation just one day after Slovakia declared its independence. Um, 
and quick to act, they managed to design a flag and state seal as well as declare a national anthem in one day. So they had a pretty <laughs> wow, busy yeah. day in Kapato, Ukraine. So they gained, um, you know, uh, inspiration from Slovakia. Mm. And really, the Slovakian independence was just a ruse so that uh, Nazi Germany could invade and take over the country. You know yeah. what I mean? So, yeah. but, but anyways, these people in Ukraine, they were like, actually, do you know what? We have nothing to do. We'll design a flag, state seal, and come up with our own national anthem in one day. So oh, they did sure. quite a lot. Uh, much like Hitler and the Nazis, the leader of Hungary, neighbours to Kapato, Ukraine, had their minds set on expansion and invaded the <laughs> newly formed country <laughs> just a day later. Oh, no. Okay? And the members of the Carpato Ukraine government, fearing for their lives, fled the nation they had just created. <laughs> it was disbanded and never brought back, swallowed by the Russians after World War II. So they lasted a day. Oh, I don't mean to laugh, but that is quite comical. It is comical. Is a comical. lot of the things I go through are very oh, comical. Gosh. But you do have to feel for them. They kind of decided to branch out on their own at completely the wrong time in world history. Oh, like. totally. Totally. Very, <laughs> oh, very, very, very... Um, I suppose it's sad in a way mm. that obviously they had aspirations to come up with their own country. <laughs> they had one day. You know? But the productivity in that country is off the chain. Like, oh, wow. it's crazy, crazy. Amazing. To come up with all of that in, in one, one day. day. <laughs> amazing, amazing. And uh, actually, you'd just like to, you'd like to be a student in that country. Oh, you would. Because you would, you know, you learn about the history of Ireland and everything like that. And though it's incredibly interesting, there is a lot to learn. Yeah. But then here... <laughs> but then in... Oh, sorry, what's his name again? Kapato, Ukraine. Kapato, Ukraine. You could literally just... Yeah. In a day... Oh, you could. But the <laughs> funny thing is, if you were to think about countries that could emerge... Mm. Um, I was doing a bit of research. Uh, they say that Belgium could split oh. between the Flanders region okay. and the... I think it's the Wallonia region. So the region oh. of Wallonia speaks French, but Flanders speaks Flemish. Okay. And I was looking through another few different places. You know, there's a lot of tension in the, you know, Caucasian regions. Such yes. as Armenia, mm. Georgia. I think there's talks of a separatist state from Georgia or Armenia, like in the middle. Yes. I'm not sure the exact name for it, but there are lots of talks about it forming. Okay. So obviously I think the world map in the next 10 years would be quite different to what it is now. Yeah. It, it could also be, you know, like Catalonia and Spain, maybe oh, yeah. that's another yeah, one yeah, that's yeah. closer, you know, in geographical Even location. If, you know, who knows, Scotland could have another vote for independence. They could, they could. That was, I know, I know we mentioned him in last week's yeah. uh, um, show, but Sean Connery, that was one of his, he was a big advocate oh, for he was. Scottish he independence. Oh, he was, and um, it was more... I don't think it's that they didn't want it, but it was more the unknown. Yes. And yes. you know, like they'd have to set up everything again mm. from start. With your when you're with such a strong country as the United Kingdom, it yes. nearly suits to stay with them. Yes. Yes, definitely. But you can see, and I guess the examples of um, the countries that you're bringing up, these people saw that they wanted to be independent and kind of do things on their own. Yeah. Even though it probably would have been more beneficial to stay, to stay as well, big a country. Well, it's funny, obviously they, they felt either that they could do it better themselves or they felt that they were a different group of people and they had different, you know, yes. uh, even aspirations or that they they were like, you know, we are different to 
the majority of people in this land, so why don't we kind of band together ourselves? And create our own kind of thing. Yeah. Or they saw their neighbours do it and they wanted to... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That, that, in Ukraine. Exactly. Literally. But I'll move on to the wars. Oh, the Shortest-lived wars. Okay. So some of them were over, you know, either pretty brutally or yes. they just changed their mind. <laughs> so the first war I'd like to talk about lasted 37 days. Oh. It was the Polish-Lithuanian War. Oh, gosh. It was fought in 1920 between not just the first Polish Republic, but the second Polish Republic... <laughs> And Lithuania. I wasn't aware that there were different... Yeah. You know, the first Polish Republic or the second, but it was, you know, very strange. Mm -hmm. But the outcome was that the Polish people won. So the Mm -hmm. Polish people won. So this year, or this war, sorry, was fought not long after both nations had regained their independence. But it was part of a wider conflict over the disputed cities of Vilnius and Augustau. Oh. I don't know how I'm pronouncing them, but I think I did a pretty good job. Yeah, Augustau sounds like a really cool place. Yeah, really cool <laughs> place. But Poland claimed victory and signed an agreement to stop um, the hostilities. But Renegade... Renegade. Renegade. The <laughs> Do TikTok, that dance, yeah. The TikTok dance. That's why I kind of paused there, because uh, <laughs> I was unsure of myself. Wait, hang on, hang on. Renegade, 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 renegade. <laughs> did I do it right? You Is did, that... you yes. did. Perfect, perfectly. Shortly after, so they renegade shortly after, oh, yes. and created the puppet state of the Republic of Central Lithuania. So another short-lived country, you know. Oh, wow. Centred around the historical capital of the of Grand Duchy of Lithuania. Oh, wow. Vilnius, the state, was short-lived and did not gain international recognition, unfortunately. Oh, yes, all right. For 18 months, the entity served as a buffer state between Poland and Lithuania, uh, which it depended on, obviously, okay? But finally, on March 24th, 1922... Oh! My birthday! Your birthday, yes. <laughs> Following the general elections held there, it was next to Poland. And the elections were not recognised by the Republic of Lithuania. So a very short-lived war, obviously, you know, 1920, two years after the Great War, the First World War, yes. a lot of different, you know drawing of maps maps mm-hmm. had to be redrawn so a lot of i wouldn't even say conflict but uh tensions between different areas yes. because you know groups of people are being split mm. and also the people who were drawing the kind of borders and creating basically these new countries they they were they were part of the big powers oh yes after world war oh, for sure and they probably didn't have as intimate a knowledge of those areas as they probably should have yes, when they were creating yes, those very states. True. And I don't mean to, you know, be rude or besmirch anyone's name, but I personally, because it led to basically World War Two and everything with that, the you know, the agreements and the Treaty of Versailles after World War One, I, I don't think they did a brilliant job. No. And I think conflicts like this war could have been avoided if more care and attention very true. had been made yeah. after those but saying that hindsight is 2020 hindsight is 2020 probably at that time they tried to do the best job they could yeah because we have to remember all the countries in europe had been completely war-torn oh, they at had that state wiped uh, out the stage exactly so sorry there no you go. problem next war i'd like to talk about is the georgian armenian war ah. which lasted 24 days 24 days 24 yeah that's very short very short less than a month yeah <laughs> so it was also fought you know close to 1920 1918 okay and it was between georgia and armenia <laughs> but the outcome of this was actually a mutual admi- administration of the disputed district of which they were fighting okay for. so this war was a border war 
and yeah. obviously fought in 1918 between the Democratic Republic of Georgia and also the Democratic Republic of Armenia. Mm. And it was over the parts of then disputed provinces of Lari, Javakheti and the Borkalo district, oh. which had been historically bicultural, both Armenian and Georgian territories. Okay, so they they, they, they didn't lean either way. They no, were kind of nice. Hill. Oh. Kind of the 19th century, it, it was largely populated by Armenians. But before oh. then, it was kind of a toss-up between the two. Okay, okay. By the end of World War One, some of the territories um, were occupied by the Ottomans. But when they were defeated and abandoned uh, control of the regions, both Georgians and Armenians claimed control. So, you know, you have a big fallout after the Ottoman Emperor fell. Yes. Which is obviously huge. That is huge, yeah, no. Really big emperor. Empire. Empire. And many people forget that they even existed. Mm. But they were so powerful. Oh, like, they people were. People forget how large their empire was and how powerful they, they were. They were great leaders. Uh, <laughs> trying to think. Uh, about 400 years ago, there were loads of Soleimani. Yes. Soleimani the yeah. Magnificent. The Great. <laughs> and, you know, they literally expanded all over. Mm. And very rapidly. Oh, very rapidly. I think their downfall... This this is not from a very educated point of view. I'd have to research it more, but just from my general knowledge of the Ottoman Empire and how it fell, I think a large part of that was because of its size. Yes. And it's it was unable to kind of modernize its army quick yeah. enough to kind of fight properly well, in the like, world wars. It's like the world Roman war. Emperor yes. Empire. Yes. You know, you have all these different territories of people who you know they don't really mix mm. at the time. Yes. And then you have groups coming together in Germany, you know, barbarians basically coming mm. down the Franks and them and just literally obliterating oh, yes. uh, the empire. And, and a lot of that as well, actually the fall of the Roman Empire, which I find really interesting is, you know how each Rome, Roman uh, citizen had to serve in the army for a certain amount of time? Yes. If you basically could put up someone in your place, say that they'll take my place in the Roman army and fight for me, you didn't have to serve, but they yes. would serve in your place. Yes. I think a large part of the fall of the Roman Empire came because so many Romans basically got the, the Goths, the Barbarian, the oh, Franks yes. to exactly. take their place exactly. in the army. Exactly. But this was different and this was after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Yes, very <laughs> true. So, anyways, back to this war. So, the dispute degenerated into armed clashes on the 7th of December 1918. But the hostilities continued with varying success until December 31st. When the British actually brokered a ceasefire, and this left the disputed part of Borjalo district under the joint Georgian-Armenian administration, which lasted until the establishment of the Soviet rule in Armenia in 1920. So it actually came to a reasonable conclusion, conclusion mm. you, you could say. Any war, you know, yeah. if it just ends, I think that's... That, that's a reasonable conclusion, <laughs> exactly. and ends peacefully. Exactly, yeah. And, and actually, the fact that it lasted, so it kind of ended in 1918. And yeah. Then, uh, or, or, sorry, the war ended in 1918, established that democratic kind oh, of yes. uh, bipartisan totally. rule. Yeah. But ended in 1929. That's 11 years of solid kind of respect between the Armenians yeah. and Georgians. Yeah. Which just shows that two countries that had literally gone to war and back can... Oh, totally. Work together. Totally. Uh, next war, famous war, Six Day War. Okay. Lasted 10 days. No, it didn't. <laughs> Lasted six days. 
So it was fought in 1967, and it was between Israel, and they were against Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and Iraq. Oh, yes. So they were against a lot of countries, mm. okay? But actually, the Israelis won. Yes. So following Israeli threats against its Syrian ally, Egypt amassed a thousand tanks and a hundred thousand soldiers. <laughs> a lot on the border of the Sinai Peninsula and closed, they also closed the Straits of Tehran to all ships flying Israeli flags or carrying strategic materials. Uh -huh. And they called for the unified action or Arab action against Israel. On June 5th, 1967, Israel launched an, an attack against Egypt's air force. Okay. Jordan then attacked Western Jerusalem and Netanya. Okay. Okay. At the war's end, Israel had gained control of Eastern Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip, Sinai Peninsula, the West Bank, and the Golan Heights. So, funnily enough, even though you could argue, you know, Egypt uh, kind of did most of the um, aggressive actions at the start. Mm. Now, obviously, there's two sides in every war, but they yes. were the ones who kind of maybe instigated it with, you know, the large army. Yeah. Funny that they ended up way <laughs> worse <laughs> off than Israel because Israel gained a lot of territories, okay? Wow. The results of the war affected the geopolit uh, geopolitics of the region and they still affect it to this day. Mm. Overall, Israel's territory actually grew by a factor of three. And this included about one million Arabs placed under Israel's direct control in the newly captured territories. So Israel literally expanded Jeez. over six days, just massively. Gosh, you know, that, if you're Israel, that's that's not a bad outcome. Not a bad outcome. Well, hopefully, actually, I say that. I hope the casualties for either side weren't high. Yeah. Because any casualties in war, you know, what is the price of a human life? You can't yes. really put a price on it. So even though they did expand, if there were heavy casualties, is it really worth it? Yes. Yes, but Israel's strategic depth grew to at least 300 kilometers in the south, 60 in the east, and actually 20 kilometers of extremely rugged terrain in the north. But this, see, I mentioned rugged. Mm. This is a really, really good asset to have, and it proved really useful in the 1973 Arab-Israeli war six years later. Because it's defensible. It's defensible. It? Yeah. Like if you think about... I read a book um, called Prisoners of uh, Geography <laughs> and it's about how geography actually can make or break a country. So if you think of yes. Russia, they have flat plains called the North European Plains mm -hmm. to the west of the Ural Mountains. Yes. Completely flat land and obviously that's bad because that leaves you open to attack. So what have the Russians trying to do? Influence. Gain buffer states like Belarus, Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. Think of all these former Soviet states, even Poland. Yes. They're not there for, you know, purely because they have resources. It, they're there because they're buffers against attacks. Like they, attack. it gives them time. It does, if yeah. It does. On because then they have to go through all these territories. Mm. Then the North European plains and they won't get past the, Euro, the, the Ural Mountains. Actually, just, just as you were talking about the Ural Mountains bringing it back to the yeah. last week as well but uh, <laughs> yeah yeah exactly I, I i i heard on a on a separate podcast and um, that a that when you know during world war Two, yeah a large uh a, a big reason why um 
the Soviet Union and Stalin kind of succeeded in, you know, repelling the German army, the Nazis, sorry. Yeah. And was because of the fact that they managed to move a bunch of their kind of um, factories, their military factories yeah. in and around the Ural Mountains. Oh, yes. So they yes. weren't as easily bombed. Oh, yeah. That, that, that was a big factor. Big factor. But the last war only lasted 45 minutes. <laughs> and this was the Anglo-Zanzibar War. Okay. Fought in 1896 between the British Empire and Zanzibar and the British one. So it was fought uh, on the 27th of August 1896 and with a duration of 45 minutes it holds the amazing record of being the shortest war in recorded history. It broke out after Sultan Ahmad bin uh, Tuwani who had willingly cooperated with the British colonial administration died and his nephew Khalid Bin Bagash seized power in what amounted to a coup. Okay. Okay. The British favoured another candidate, candidate Hamoud bin Mohammed, whom they believed uh, would be way easier to work with, and they delivered an ultimatum, ordering um, Bagash to abdicate. But Bagash refused. While Bagash's troops set to fortifying the palace, um, the Royal Navy assembled five warships in the harbour in front of the palace. <laughs> Oh, the no. British also landed parties of Royal Marines to support the Loyalist um, regular army of Zanzibar. Despite the Sultan's last efforts to negotiate for peace uh, via the US representative on the island, mm. uh, the Royal Navy ships opened fire on the palace at 9am on the 27th of August, and as soon as the ultimatum uh, ran out, they stopped. Or actually, I kind of phrased that wrong. Oh. They fired when the ultimatum, ultimatum ran out. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was thinking <laughs> to myself. Because then it wouldn't make sense. Yeah, they, they were going to bombard you until we oh, were going to yeah. say that we yeah, were going to bombard until, Yeah, sorry about that, guys. <laughs> but we'll keep that in. Yeah. Uh, so the British um, demanded that the Germans surrender their erstwhile sultan to them because um, he actually, Bagash, made a hasty retreat to the German consulate where he was created oh. asylum. Was this... Does this tie into the very first uh, country that you spoke about? Tanganyika. Tanganyika. It's was the, the same area as Zanzibar. Area, yeah, you're dead exactly. right, but different time periods. Oh, yes. I, I, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah but, no, but it does, obviously. You're getting the German you influence know, yeah, still yeah. around. But uh, the ship, you know, stopped shelling after 45 minutes. So that's mm. the length of the war, okay? Um, so actually, Bergash escaped to sea on the 2nd of October from 1896. Oh, wow. He lived in exile in Dar es Salaam until uh, he was captured by the British in 1916. He was allowed to live in Mombasa, where he died in 1927. As a final act, Britain demanded payment from the uh, Zanzibar government to pay for the shells <laughs> fired on the country. So very strange. Oh, gosh. Very short war. 45 minutes. <laughs> but I'd love to do a story later on on Bergash himself, because yeah. you know he he escaped to the sea, went to the German consulate, you know lived lived in exile for many years. So yeah. very very interesting character. Gee whiz, he certainly seems it. So that was uh, my little bit about the shortest war and the shortest lived countries. Well, Hope that, you enjoyed. I really enjoyed that. That was excellent, Dar. And you know what's actually quite funny that I just thought of, even though war is never a thing yeah. to be laughed at. Our show has gone on longer than that last war. It has. It has. Amazingly. Amazing. And thank God we don't have to pay anyone for it. Exactly. Exactly. If you'd like to pay us. Yeah, if you'd like to pay us, go on. We'll, 
with, no, uh, no. Mar- with Morse code or PayPal details. Oh gosh, actually that that'd be quite funny. Oh, Ooh, that actually might inspire a, a, another research topic. Yes. You know, people who escaped using Morse, Morse code, code and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. So Very maybe later on, after I finish kind of my Irish mysteries kind of tour. Yes. Of, the week, uh, the next coming weeks, and we can we can go on to some more totally. code stories. Sounds like a good idea. There we go. We're already planning for the future. We are. We are. And hopefully you're planning for your future too. And you're planning to listen to us next time on Saturday at 5 o'clock? 6 o'clock? 6 o'clock. 6 o'clock. 6 o'clock on Saturday on Flirt FM at 101.3. Thank you. You've been listening to Rory and Dara's Research and Development. Tune in next time for some more interesting topics. Goodbye.
standing the Italian cafes. When he's drunk, it's hard to understand why Billy stands. But then he mumbles in his coffee and he suddenly roars. It's a red church, And we've been... Oh!